You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone, super excited to bring you my friend Cody Sanchez today, and she's got a lot of stuff going on. So she has she's the managing director and partner of Entourage Effect Capital, super cool name, uh, which is a private equity firm focused specifically on investing in the legalized cannabis industry. She has a company called Contrarian Thinking, and she's also launching something called Contrarian Cashflow. So a lot of stuff going on within that. And Cody, first and foremost, welcome. How's it going? Life's good, man. I appreciate you having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be, this is going to be great. So yeah, tell us a little bit about kind of your background, all the stuff that you have going on right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'm like you. I'm a serial business acquirer and builder. And so I started off as a journalist, completely unrelated to all things finance, figured out that I didn't want to just bring awareness to things. I wanted to build things. So I went into finance, did the you know Goldman Sachs and State Street and Vanguard, alternatives, private equity, investment banking sort of track. And then with each firm that I went to, I ended up going to smaller size firms and taking larger roles, which was interesting. And so finally, I sold out of my last company, which was a couple billion dollars in Latin America that we built up from nothing. And then I was looking for my next thing and realized that, you know, what I'm good at is finding arbitrage opportunities. So where is there some common narrative and th- that I don't believe? And I find sort of the uncommon truth and, and can take advantage of that since I'm not smart enough to, to do it in highly competitive markets. So did that with cannabis and realized, wow, there's a total arbitrage opportunity here. Uh, became a partner at a PE firm. And in finance, like a lot of people have a saying, which is get rich quietly. And I never really liked that saying. So I started Contrarian Thinking, which is a newsletter that comes out weekly, because I thought, you know, let's let's all actually create wealth together. I think we typically do it in the wrong way. And so the goal of Contrarian Thinking is to get people to think critically and cash flow unconventionally. Got it. I love it. So I'm just looking through my notes here. So for Entourage Effect Capital, I mean, wh- where how is that business doing today? How is that looking? And how much, I guess, how much money have you raised around that? Sure. Yeah. So we've invested about $200 million in the legalized cannabis space. We now probably have about $225 million under management, something like that. We've done it across three funds and a series of co-investment deals and have invested in 65 companies thus far with uh, about 27 liquidity events. So we've, we've done very well in that fund, thankfully, thus far. I mean, it's, it's a hard business, man. Anybody who thinks they want to get into cannabis and that it's going to be easy, it's crazy. It's very difficult with taxes and regulations, but we've been doing it since 2014. So we have a little bit of an unfair advantage there. Got it. And a lot of people, I mean, you know, you have the SPAC craze right now. A lot of people are becoming Robinhood investors. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people also want to say, hey, I, I just want to start my own fund. It doesn't seem it's that seem like it's that bad. So what would you say to people that are looking to start something similar? What are kind of the, the, the potholes to to avoid? Yeah, well, first of all, remember that the only thing we trade in finance is trust. We don't build something, right? We essentially, it's a transfer of trust in your money to me, and I'm supposed to give you back a return plus your money later. 
And so the people that jump in without thinking about it, I think is a huge mistake because you can absolutely ruin your reputation as there is an expectation that you give people's money back. If you fail in a business and the business doesn't work, well, that's always a possibility when you invest in a business. If you do it in a fund, that's really bad. And so, so I'd say, first of all, do not do this lightly. It is not an easy path to wealth. And if you're looking to invest, make sure that whichever managers you go with have a track record that have been doing this for a few years or have built other businesses and are you know, backed by other people who have an asset management background, because there's a lot of these zombie funds that you know they start with a couple million bucks and then maybe get to a couple tens of millions of bucks, uh, but they're not very profitable until you have real big liquidity events, until you you know make some good investments and get your money back. And so people can give up on those pretty easy and then investors get left to, to the wayside. Got it. And so I think, you know, 225 under management is, is a big number for, for anybody. And so for those people looking to get started, I, I was, there's actually, I mean, the trend I've seen, I've been seeing is a lot of people are starting kind of their, their micro funds, right? Where it might just be one partner and they raise, you know, a couple million dollars, maybe $5 million. And, you know, they just go off and, and, you know, use their brand and they get some deal flow, right? So do you think that's a good way of getting started? Do you think maybe that's not a good way to get started? I just want to get your thoughts. So listen, I love people who want to get out there and get after it. So I think starting any business is is great and and go for it. The one thing you got to be careful about when you do investing, at least if you're investing in individual businesses or startups, is you got to remember that if you raise 5 million bucks, you need, you know, maybe 10 million bucks behind that because you're going to get diluted over the course of your time investing. So the the biggest thing for people who raise is to feel like they should be able to continue to raise and they put aside enough capital in order to keep doubling down on your winners. Because what's going to happen is you're going to go out, you're going to invest in some companies. If you invest in early stage startups, you're going to have 80% of them fail. You're going to have to be able to figure out who those winners and losers are. You're going to have to let a bunch of them go. And then you're going to have to have enough money to keep re-upping in the 20% to take bigger chunks of it or to not get diluted as they continue to raise. And that's one thing that a lot of first-time managers don't do very well is reserve enough capital. It's called a capital reserve for follow-ons. And so they need to make sure that they do that in the fund. Got it. And so for the beginners, I mean, if they want to get started, what are some resources or what books do you recommend for them to, you know, kind of get their beaks wet? Um, That's a really good question. I actually don't know if there's a lot of books written about how to become a fund or an asset manager. I think probably the best thing to do is follow along with all the funds that have been built thus far. I mean, Ben Horowitz is how to do, you know, the hard thing about hard things, but he doesn't really go into fund structuring. More than a book, I would probably say you need to get the right attorney. Like, do you have your docs structured the right way? Is the attorney actually somebody who's worked with fund managers before? And not just any type of fund manager. You need a specific attorney if you're doing real estate and a specific attorney if you're doing startups and a different specific attorney if you're doing late stage. So the the devil is really in the details in investing in startups and your documents are so, so, so critical because the difference between, you know, I could put $100,000 in a company worth a million bucks today and you could. And if my term sheet is written different than yours, my investment could be worth sizably more or less than yours. And that's where a lot of people screw up. So I would say really understand the back end nuances of it first from a legal perspective. Got it. And just, I mean, people wondering right now, it's like, oh, what's the model? Like, how do I make money if I start a fund? Is it, uh, is it typically what you see? Is it like a two and 20 model or is it something else? Yeah. So it depends. If you're a little micro fund, you know, 
Our fund is two and 20, for instance. So let's just start there. That's standard across the industry. There's a lot of compression happening on prices for smaller funds today. So somebody might do a one in 10 instead. And that basically just means a 2% management fee. So you get 2% of all the assets raised. And then 20% is the carry, which is your success fee. Now, usually there's something else called the hurdle rate or a preferred rate, which basically means I have, I promise you, Eric, that I'm going to pay you 8% per year first. And after I give you that 8% per year, I can start taking my carry. But if I don't beat that quote unquote hurdle of 8%, I make no carry. So it's a pretty easy model. You can take a million bucks and take 2% of it and look at that over the course of a five or seven year fund. And that's how much you'll make. Got it. I love it. Cool. So a final question I'll have around I have around this is those mm-hmm. people that are let's say they have expertise in I don't know blockchain or actually blockchain is a bad example. Let's not use that. Maybe they have expertise <laughs> around uh, the travel industry and they see you know things are going to recover soon. What would they be doing to raise money? How many people should they be reaching out to, presenting to? Uh, what does that roadshow look like? Yeah. So well, what I would recommend doing first is if you are looking to raise a micro fund. First of all, you need to put like 1% of the capital in there from yourself. So, you know, typically anywhere from 1% to 10% of the capital is from the fund managers. They need to know that you have skin in the game. Then the second thing that I would do is go out and get a really good seed investor. Before you go trying to throw the, the net wide, try to get one really good, it's called an anchor or seed investor, who can open other doors for you and whose name you can use and whose sort of cachet you can use. And that will make your raise incredibly easier. And then there's a billion resources online about how to fundraise, how to market, and all of the same things that apply to a launch apply to a fundraise, except you got to be careful legally about how you do it and you can't be too public. Now, a lot of people are actually pretty public in their fundraise. Like for instance, Sean Purry, you know, from my first million or whatever, he he said pretty fun publicly, I'm raising a fund, here's what it's doing, da, 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 da. That's actually not allowed by the SEC. So, you know, a lot of times they don't come after small fund managers, but that stuff is called private placement laws. And you you do need to be careful about those. So read up a little bit. The laws around that, Cody, I, I thought you are actually now, you're, you're allowed to make it public. I, I could be wrong. So this is the thing about SEC laws is you, it really depends on how much risk you want to take on. So if if you say, hey, we can make it public because we said it's for accredited investors and qualified investors only, and so they have to self-select into it, then there are some attorneys that'll tell you, hey, that's cool. You know, you can do that. And there are some attorneys that'll say, mm, you can actually still get sued by somebody who doesn't get into your fund or somebody who does get into your fund. So the thing with the, the law on a lot of this is it's malleable. So, you know, right now we would never go out and say we're in the middle of a fundraise because we think the risk is too big to do that. So it really depends on what you're open to do or what you want to do. Yeah. I see a lot of people in in tech Twitter basically, you know, announcing their rolling funds. Hey, I'm doing a rolling fund. So, you know, I I don't know if that that was what Sean was doing, but I I hear what you're saying. Cool. So let's talk about contrarian thinking. So, you know, what was the impetus behind this? And, you know, some people might might be saying, why don't you just focus on entourage effect capital? Why are you trying to do this other stuff? Yeah, well, one, everything's a flywheel, right? So especially when you're an investor, my first and foremost job is always going to be investing. That's where I've made most of my money, not just in cannabis, but in emerging markets and in real estate and a lot of the different things that I do. But the one thing about startups that's true is that start in startups, it's the only asset class where you pick the investment, but the investment also picks you. 
And so, you know, to get into the best deals and the most competitive deals, you have to be somebody that they want to have on their cap table. And so there's a huge benefit in investing to be known in whatever your space is, because we we call it the entourage effect at Entourage Effects Capital. But basically, it's that if I give you a dollar, well, actually, here's a perfect example. We have a company called Can. This is a microdose THC beverage company. Actually, they're located out of your hood in LA. And this company we gave, let's say we gave them a million bucks. I don't remember the exact dollar amount. So if we gave them a million dollars, that million dollars is great. Can can go run with that. They can grow their business. But the difference between us and some of the other guys is I don't believe in just giving a dollar. If I'm going to give you a dollar, I want my dollar to be worth three or five to you. So with Can, we also got them on the shelves of five of our other portfolio companies in order for them to distribute. So we add, you know, a couple million dollars to Can's revenue line in tandem with my, you know, million dollar investment. And why? Because we invest in those other companies and because they because I get them a ton of press, I get them a ton of marketing. You know, they call me all the time to think about how to grow their sales overall. And they see me having a public platform that can be beneficial to them. And so that's the real benefit of having a flywheel and a reputation as you get into great deals, you create a multiplier effect for your underlying portfolio companies, and then you surround yourself with interesting people who can make you smarter and help you make more money. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that that in itself is contrarian because not a lot of investors are, are doing it. We had um, Anthony Pompliano on the podcast a while back, and he's built a, a very sizable audience. And he's also helping his wife and his brother build their audiences too. So I'm sure he's got a plan behind that. But I think you know, you have code capital and you have labor and then you have media, that's the ultimate form of leverage and not enough people think about it. And I think that's, that's going to be changing, right? So can you talk more right. about what it actually means to be a contrarian thinker and then maybe give some examples? Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, I think you're so right. I cannot tell you, Eric, the pushback I got and, and still sometimes get about being public and writing things out there in the ethernet. Because, you know, finance people, for whatever reason, I think it's probably regulatory oversight. They don't really like to be public. And they think that if you are public, they're like, oh, well, maybe you're not successful enough in finance. And so you have to go out and do this other thing. Or maybe you have a ton of ego. And so you want your face all over everything. And it's just an older way of thinking. But that is also probably because in the finance industry, the average age is 65 years old. And so this new wave of marketing and advertising is really lost upon them. It used to be, you know, all of my investors that I got in originally 10 years ago, I would fly to their office, I'd go to the boardroom, I'd be in a suit with pantyhose, we'd shake hands, I'd do a PowerPoint presentation, maybe even like with hard copy paper, not even on the, the slide deck. And that's how we get deals done, you know, or in the 18th hole or 19th hole or whatever they say. So anyway, so that's different from today. Now, Contrarian thinking to me is a couple things. One, I've found that most of the money I've made in life and the success that I've had is not from really having brilliant ideas. It's from asking the right questions. Like, why is the whole world doing this when I see this opportunity here? And it's going down rabbit holes. And so if I could transfer one skill set to like my next generation, it would be the ability to ask questions intelligently. I think that's probably the biggest driver to success right alongside drive and EQ and all of that. And so the first thing that I want people to do at a contrarian thinking is really think for themselves. And I want them to push back against the noise and the narrative that is out in the market today, whether that's politically, whether that's professionally, whatever the case may be. And I think we've talked about this before, but I think our modern day education system is horridly, horridly off base. And I don't think it teaches us how to think. I think it teaches us what to think. And so this is my pushback against that 
telling people all the stuff that I wish I would have known earlier. And the difference between maybe contrarian thinking and some of the others is that everything we talk about and everything that we present ideas on, we go and do. We do a deep dive analysis on all of these areas. We're not just kind of talking at a high level about how to buy modular homes and do it at a one-third discount from a regular house or how to go and buy land by national parks for 10K and profit 1500 or how to think critically on constructing a course and like every single step that gets you from a course to a million dollars in revenue. And so I like this idea of building in public. Yeah, no, I love that. Building in public is is huge. And just so for those of you in the audience, there's actually a there's a Twitter list, I believe, for building in public. I highly recommend you check that out. But building in public is basically just sharing what you know and sometimes even sharing your numbers. It just depends on how transparent you want to get. And you talk about, you know, just thinking in general, leveling up people's thinking. And I used to think that was a bunch of baloney. I was most interested in because I come from a marketing background, I'm most interested in strategies and tactics around marketing. I'm like, I don't need this pie in the sky thinking stuff. And you realize everything's about how you think about things because that thinking leads to the actions that you take. So I think, you know, having something around contrarian thinking, because if everyone's already doing something, you know, that's probably not good. You're not going to gain a lot. Right. So I guess for you, Cody, with contrarian thinking, you have the newsletter. What else do you have that's tied to it? Yeah. So my little flywheel is a couple fold. Well, first of all, we have contrarian thinking, weekly newsletter, deep dive once a week on different ways to push back on trends happening in the world or take advantage of them. Then we're launching uh, Contrarian Cashflow, which maybe will be launched by then, but this is a premium version of the newsletter. And you know we have 100,000 subscribers across Contrarian Thinking. And the idea is, is Contrarian Thinking will help you think and it'll give you ideas to capitalize on. Contrarian Cashflow will give you the actual roadmap for those ideas. So each month we're gonna do a deep dive we're calling it the contrarian chat. And we're going to do a live Q&A and webinar with some of the experts that usually I only talk to myself. And then we're going to have like a template. So for instance, our first one's going to be how to buy real estate at auction. So how to never pay retail for real estate. And I have a bud who's bought billions and bought and sold billions of dollars worth of real estate at auction. And so I'm going to go to an auction with him. We're going to film it. We're going to talk about all the particulars to prepare for it. We're going to give everybody a little download, and then they'll be able to get on the line with Aaron, Amustasegi is his name, and me, and ask a ton of questions on how to do it. And so that will be contrarian cash flow, and we'll go real deep on one newsletter each month, and we'll do it with the experts so that there's actual tactics and a path you can follow instead of usually what I give, which is ideas and specifics on what I did, but a lot of people need a just one step further of handholding. I love it. And I'm looking at, God, sometimes Substack is such a pain in the ass, but I'm looking at it right now. It's, it's it, The newsletter looks like it's it's got great engagement. The topics look really interesting. I just don't know how to manage all my Substacks. I don't know about you. Oh the, yeah, especially the new up, upgrade I'm not into. There, I didn't even know there was a new upgrade. I'm just looking at the the, the blog right now. So that, that's, so just, you know, yeah. search Cody Sanchez Substack, you'll find it. And so you actually have something else that's coming out or actually you've had this already, uh, unconventional acquisitions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that was the first way that I monetized contrarian thinking. Unconventional acquisitions is a course and a mastermind that teaches people how to do M&A, mergers and acquisitions. So we teach people how to go out and buy profitable businesses, just like I do in private equity, and do it at a smaller scale, obviously. And instead of the guessing game of trying to figure out if your startup's going to work, you can do sort of this buy then build model, which is buy the startup, 
and then build and optimize on top of it. And so we've been doing that since, let's see, we launched in July and that business does like $30,000 a month right now in sales. And we've taught now, well, not taught, we've had 12 people buy a business, which is really cool. And the goal is we have 100,000 people that we help become business owners. And the reason we do all of this is because there is a generational wealth transfer happening in small businesses from the boomer generation to the next. They're retiring at record levels. And then you throw a pandemic on top of it and you can buy businesses at a discount that's astounding. So while all of Silicon Valley focuses on you know, potential money makers with really high multiples and very expensive to buy, our model is why don't you just invest in businesses that cash flow right now and with a market at all time high and real estate at all time high, this segment of the market, nobody really talks about. And so that's what we talk about with unconventional acquisitions. Got it. And so if people are interested in sourcing deals, I guess this is just for starters. And then we can talk about, you know, pricing and all that with the course. So how, if I'm looking to go buy a business, what do you recommend? Where do you recommend people go to, to find these deals? Yeah. Well, it depends what kind of deal you want. So there's, there's sort of nine steps to buying a business. You know, the first step is you understand the opportunity, which we just talked about. The second step is you get clarity on what you want. So like if I'm Eric, if I'm you, I want a business that is accretive, meaning it adds some value to the businesses that I already have, right? Like I probably don't want to just go out and buy a laundromat. I want to go out and buy a couple SaaS or marketing businesses that are doing okay, or an email list that's doing okay. And I want to I want to plug it into my ecosystem because I can buy something for a dollar and make it worth five, right? That's your flywheel. But for somebody who's never bought a business and doesn't have other businesses to plug them in with, then you ask yourself some questions. Do you just want to replace your W-2 income, which is one sort of type of person? So if you make $100,000, you want to go and buy a business so you don't have to work for that manager you hate anymore. And so you would go on some of the sites like BizBuySell and e-commerce flippers and Flippa, and you'd start looking for businesses that have $100,000 in profit that are probably located in your geographic area or in your area of expertise online, and you'd start screaming for that dollar amount. And then the second type of person is somebody like me. I invest and buy lots of different businesses and I use them as just different ways to get passive income. There's no yield in the world. There's no income in the world today because rates are so low. So I use small businesses to cash flow instead of typical investments. So I don't really care if the business is related to what I do, as long as I have an operator that can manage it and it makes me at least $100,000 a year, then I'm gravy and I'll probably look at investing. And then there's the third type, which are people who do roll-ups. So we just had a guy who owns an accounting firm. He's always grown organically, very slow and steady. And you know he, he doesn't really know how to grow further than what he was doing right now. So we just helped him acquire another accounting firm, an older guy. He hadn't monetized much of his client base in a big way. All of his books were actually not even online. He did a bunch of stuff by ledger. He didn't have a website. And so this guy was able to take a business that did $200,000 a year in revenue. And I can't remember what the margins were, but they were pretty good. And he plugged it into his ecosystem. And that's a a roll-up model. Got it. I love that. And so final question actually on on the... Well, one that just popped into mind is if I don't know how to run a business, but you're talking about buy them, build, and uh, I'm just like, oh, wow, it's it's really interesting. I want to buy a business. Where do I go get amazing operators? 
Yeah, the, lots of different ways to do it. My friend, actually, I think you know Lisa Song Sutton too. She did a, a little video series for us because in the in the course there's like 17 videos with experts. Actually, you're in there, Eric, talking about how to, you know, how how to grow businesses, how to buy them in different ways. And Lisa, I think, has a great model for people who don't have operator networks. So, so for somebody like myself. I have operators that are in my wheelhouse that when I have a new business, I oftentimes plug them in. That's not always repeatable. What Lisa does is brilliant. Lisa's basically had four businesses, all where she was just the money and somebody else is the operator. And she finds them actually from groups of people she already knows, which I think is a, there's two models. You can either buy implied experience or uh, enacted experience. And so implied experience is what Lisa does. So she went and she had a bunch of friends who worked in Las Vegas, which is where she lives, who were like bartenders, cocktail waitresses. They were hustlers. They knew how to work hard. They had a great work ethic. And yet the pandemic was shutting them down. And so she scooped a bunch of them and turned them into uh, the head of a bunch of male pack and ship centers that she that she bought. So like kind of like a UPS, but independent. She turned other ones into the head of a uh, Sin City Cupcakes, a, a cupcake company that she has. She turned another one into uh, quite a few actually into regional managers for her real estate business. And so if you have a little bit of a personal network, that's how you plug somebody in who's an implied talent and that's how you get them for cheap. The problem with that is you have to tell them what to do and show them the playbook and then hopefully they can ideate on it. The other way to do this is to look inside the business. So if you go and shop, but you don't know anything about cars like me, then what you'd want to do is when you're doing your due diligence, you ask the owner, like, who are your top guys? Who are the best guys at leadership? Who are the best guys at actually fixing things? And who are the best guys at operations? And so then you only look to buy a business where there's already talent inside it, and you can elevate that talent to manager instead of whatever role they were doing previously. Yep. I love that. And how about when it comes to incentives, I mean, there's a couple ways. I was actually listening to a good podcast with uh, Andrew Wilkinson and his co-founder yesterday. And you know, the way they do it is they don't particularly give equity a lot, but it's really based on you know profit, right? So you know, we'll give you we'll give you ten percent of additional profit that you bring in. You have to you know we can talk about clearing hurdles and all that. I'm just wondering how you structure incentives to keep people motivated. Yeah, this part's so fun actually because it's all a game. You can do whatever you want. You can get as crazy as you want to get. And I think the thing that people limits goes back to our contrarian thinking is like, you just have to, you just have to think a little bit, you have to get creative. And so when I do payouts for operators, every deal is different. There is literally no template that I have that I require each time. That said, if you're in a small business, you probably aren't going to be able to exit and sell for big multiples typically. So if all you have is an equity share that that an operator gets, you're right, that might not be enough incentive. And you also might have to give away too much equity for it to be an incentive because you want to keep this thing for a while theoretically in cash flow. So you can do what you just talked about, a profit share. You can do a profit share with some equity. You can do it with, you know, milestones. That's my favorite way to do it. So, you know, if we hit this number, or if we hit these numbers, then you get this amount. And you can also do it based on a vesting schedule. So, you know, in the first year, you'll get X percent of the profit or equity. In the second year, you'll get Y. In the third year, you'll get Z. And those are all fun ways to play around with it. 
Got it. I love that. And then, so you, I mean, you've acquired a ton of businesses, you know, are you, you, you talked about basically buying them to cash flow. So are you keeping most of them or are you offloading, you know, a certain percentage? How are you looking at that? Yeah, I try to keep most of the businesses unless they're a lot of work. So for the most part, you know, I, I want businesses to be like, I kind of think about it on a very, very micro scale, like a Berkshire Hathaway. Like, you know, I, I want to get into boring, straightforward businesses that I think have a really long leg to run on. And I want to put them into a portfolio. I want to optimize them. I want to add more businesses to them for scale. And then I want to run them forever. So that's my model. I'm not into the buy and flip. But of course, you know, if I got a crazy offer on any of them, that's the one nice thing about not being tied to only one business is that when opportunity arises, your ego isn't centered on that one thing. And so you can sell or you can move on or or you can shut it down if you have to. Yeah, I think the more diverse you are, uh, you're not as emotionally attached, right? So, and how are you... When you think about these businesses, I mean, I know for, let's use Andrew Wilkinson again as an example, because I asked him the same question, you know, how involved are you with these other businesses? Because I know for him, he likes to tinker with a lot, right? So sometimes he'll jump in, give some thoughts, you know, opine and nudge, and then just kind of jump around. Is that how you're operating? Are you like completely hands-off? Yeah, no, no, no. I think, well, it depends. Like, you know, there's actually, there's really no business where I am totally hands-off unless I'm a minority investor and I don't cash flow on it. So I certainly have some startups I've invested in that I just, you know, gave them money and I let them run. But the the businesses that, you know, cash flow and that I actually are I'm thinking about growing and, and all of that, I'm, I'm relatively involved. But I think Andrew Wilkinson has the sort of the same model I do, which is, you know, I, I have financial Fridays. So that's where I, every Friday I go for the financials for all the businesses that I have or have the CEOs or operators report out to me in varying mechanisms. So I look at those continuously. On Monday, I sort of have like the overview call for most of the businesses. So I don't always have to be on those calls, but I like them to have them without me. And then they keep all of their top five priorities in shared drive. So I can kind of see what everybody's working on if I need to. And then usually they call me when there's a problem. Like one of my businesses is a, a podcast production business and it's growing really fast and we need more good help to manage the operations and the admin of it. And we've struggled to find really great help for two roles. So they'll bring me in and then we'll ideate on that. But I usually try to not be involved in the day-to-day, honestly, because I'm not very good at it. I like to think about big things to make happen and then execute on those. Got it. I love that. So unconventional acquisitions, I mean, you know, a lot of stuff we're talking about right now is packaged into something that's going to be a lot easier for someone to digest. These are just short answers, right? So how much does it cost for someone to, you know, purchase unconventional acquisitions? What do you got? Yeah, sure. So there's a couple different ways. Well, one, we're going to do a discount for uh, Level Up Crew. So if you go to howtobuyasmallbusiness.com or unconventionalacquisitions.com, unconventional acquisitions has a lot of vowels in it. So maybe how to buy a small business is easier. But in that, if you go there, uh, we'll do a 25% discount on all the products. So just type in Level Up, no caps. And the model that we have is the buying a business course is right now until the end of February, $400. So you'll get it 25% off from that. And then I think it'll go up to 600 bucks, 597 or something. The mastermind is $2,900. Don't join the mastermind unless you're serious about buying a business. And if you are serious about buying a business, then I definitely recommend buying the mastermind because we go through each week, all the different ways 
that people are looking at deals, people share their deals. If you have a deal, everybody will give you feedback on it. There's a hundred and something people in there thus far who are all in active acquisition phase. So that's really helpful. And then if you just want to know how to value a business, there's a starter course for, I think it's like $97. So you can figure out how to value or finance your business. There are two like mini courses on there. Got it. So everyone, I mean, this is a steal because for stuff like this, I, I remember paying $2,000 for a course for, for something similar, but I can tell you Cody has actually a lot more experience. And so this is a steal you, and you get a discount on top of it. By the way, I'm not affiliated at all. So I'm not getting a commission or anything. I'm just telling you Cody is someone I trust and something that you want. It's something you want to check out. Cody, so this Thanks, has been sir. great. What is the best way? Sure. What's the best way for people to find you online? Let's do contrarianthinking.substack.com. I read every single comment in there. So if you comment on any of the uh, any of the posts, I will respond to you. I'm also very active on uh, Instagram. So Cody Sanchez on Instagram, I also respond to those. Same on Twitter. But I think the biggest thing I want people to think about is like the whole funnel for everything that I do is contrarian thinking. So if you want to find different ways to monetize and different ways to cash flow, sign up for contrarian cash flow. It's by far and away the cheapest of anything that we do. And the goal is we 10 or 100x your ROI on your monthly payment, which is like 15 bucks a month. And so that way you have a very low barrier to entry. Then if you think that what I talk about is nonsense, bail before you pay for $500 or $2,000 course. And then uh, I think what you'll find is you're, you're going to profit well off of these. Awesome. Cody, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Eric. It was a blast. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.